We're continuing this morning in 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. If you will turn there in your Bibles. 2 Peter chapter 2 uh, is a, a scathing rebuke of false teachers. That's how you say it. It is detailed description of what they're like and their motivations. It's a pretty intense chapter. Besides the book of Jude, it's the most intense on this subject, the short book of Jude. Let me read it, uh, because what he's doing here is telling believers to set your alarm, because they're going to come into the church. False teachers, false teaching is going to infiltrate the church. Notice in verse 1 of 2 Peter chapter 2, but false prophets also arose among the people just as there will also be false teachers among you. Notice the difference. Prophets, Old Testament, teachers, New Testament. Who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. They will creep in. Even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. To introduce this this morning, let me have you turn in your Bibles, hold Second Peter, and turn over to uh, 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Let me show you something that Paul says. Paul says to a true teacher. Paul says these words to Timothy, who is the pastor of the church in Ephesus. Look at these words. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. He starts it out. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Let me stop right there. Two problems that every pastor, every teacher of the Word of God must give careful attention to. You must give oversight. Paul is telling Timothy, you must give oversight to your private life. You must give oversight to your character and to yourself and to your godliness and to your inner and outer holiness. That's what he says. Pay attention to yourself. And then he says, The second thing, pay attention to your public ministry. Pay attention to your doctrine. Pay attention to what you teach. Pay attention to what you say. Pay attention to what you disciple people with. Pay attention to what you disseminate from the pulpit. Pay attention to those things. Your life and your doctrine, two important things. They cannot be corrupt. They must be pure. You must have a pure inner life and an outer life, and you must be correct in what you teach. And it doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean you don't sometimes say something wrong or get it wrong sometimes. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about one who is certainly dealing with sin. I'm a sinner. I must deal with sin in my own life and repent many times. But the point is, whenever the Bible tells us to do something, it's usually because we have a tendency not to do it. We do the opposite. We're casual about it. 
and we don't pay attention to the little compromises that go on in our lives. We just let them come in, thinking they're just something small and not realizing they can just get bigger and bigger and bigger. So Paul tells Timothy, pay close attention, Timothy, to yourself, both in your life and in your doctrine. They both need your attention. And he says the reason for the, he says persevere in these things, he says in that verse. It's a, it's a long, it's hard. It's very hard. It's very hard to give attention to both of these things. You do it with perseverance. And the reason is so critical, notice in that verse as well, for as you do this, you ensure salvation both to yourself and to those who hear you. So important. You want to ensure salvation, that the gospel is not, you're not making a stumbling block and confusing people with what the truth is. You know, it's very easy to stand up and talk for some people. The question is, is what they are saying true and do they have a life that backs that up? That's two important things that Timothy is being addressed here to Timothy by the Apostle Paul. Are they walking the walk? And once again, I'm not stating perfection by any means, but the point is, these are two things that are not happening in Second Peter. The Pharisees were accused by Jesus of telling people to do things that they, didn't, they themselves did not do. So back to Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 2. These that we're talking about in this chapter are not following what Paul told Timothy should be done. And I'm not saying that everybody in second, every false teacher or everybody that teaches false things falls into the category of Second Peter, as we said last week. There's sometimes there are people that say things by mistake. There's some people that just are ignorant of some things that need to be corrected maybe. Maybe it's uh, just like I said, like I've done many times, had to go back and rethink it or say it differently or realize that was an error. A lot of us do that. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about people who just say unhelpful things from time to time. I'm talking about people who, who've been told and they keep doing it who've been pointed out that they're presenting heresies and they keep doing it. That's what we're talking about in 2 Peter chapter 2. And this isn't one of those easy chapters to teach because a lot of us don't like conflict. A lot of us wish Pastor Rod would just talk about the things we're for and not the things we're against. But you can't be for the gospel and not be bothered or indifferent toward false gospels. You just can't be. You cannot believe that the gospel is the power of God to salvation, the power of God into salvation, and is essential, and, not, and just be indifferent when somebody comes along and states it incorrectly. Or when God's name is misrepresented. We sang wonderful truths about the character of God. We read about the character of God. But when people get up and say things about God that are not true, we just can't be indifferent to that. To say we love God means at times we may have to speak the truth 
in love. I'm not saying we're looking for a fight. I'm not saying we go looking for an argument. I'm not saying we want to debate and all of those things. I'm just saying we need to understand and have an alarm system going here that we recognize when error is present. Because as Peter says here, it's destructive. It gets into the thinking of the church and the minds of people. And don't think you're not susceptible to it. You can be. And pretty soon you end up wondering, how did I get here? How did I get here? And so Peter says, I have some things to warn you about. And basically what he's saying here in these opening verses, wherever there is a true prophet of God, there's going to be false prophets. Wherever there's a true teacher of God, there's going to be false teachers. Notice, go back to chapter 1 just for a moment, verse 21. The very last verse of chapter 1, verse 21. He says this, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. In that verse, Peter is speaking in the context there about the apostles and others who were speaking for God. And then he says immediately in chapter 2, verse 1, but, but, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. So everywhere you have true teachers, you can count on Satan bringing up his false teachers. And we looked at that last time, and I'm not going to go back through verse 1 again, but they're real, they're there, they're going to be present. That's what we said last time. We should anticipate them. They were coming into the church 2,000 years ago, and they're still coming into the church today. And secondly, I told you from last week, they secretly um, introduce destructive heresies. They come in unannounced. They don't come in saying, I'm a false teacher. They don't do that. They just come in and they begin to spread their false ideas, false interpretations of the Bible, things like that, false doctrines. They want to get in good with other true teachers. They want to be identified with them. They want to be on the same stage with them. They want to look like they are orthodox. They infiltrate the church through their blogs, through the internet. They never make contact with the elders of a church because they are afraid of being exposed for what they say. They work through the grapevine. They make phone calls. They try to form factions. That's what the word heresy actually means, a faction in the church. They even deny the master who bought them. They basically, what that means, as we said last time, they come in looking like believers. They're tares among the wheat. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 13. The church would be like, like that. It would be tares growing up alongside wheat. They look alike, and you can't tell the difference sometimes. It's kind of like Judas. Appearance, in appearance, they have the appearance of being a believer. He says their lives deny that claim. That's what he means. Their lives deny that very claim. Even denying the master who bought them. And then today, I want to take you to verse 2. Verse 2. And like I told you last week, I wish I could tell you that everybody who sees these guys or recognizes them basically says, hey, I don't want anything to do with you. I wish people would say that. I wish that when people heard some of these heresies, they had enough discernment to know that they weren't true. But the truth of the matter is, notice 
it says in verse 2, many will follow their sensuality. In fact, the majority will be deceived by them. Many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. Many will follow. Many will imitate their sensuality. See, they have a tremendous impact is the point of this verse. Don't think they're not effective. They're very effective. And the majority will follow them. Many will follow them. Turn with me to Matthew 7, verse 13. Just hold your place there in 2 Peter and turn to Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Why are they so effective? And you see here, Jesus says in verse 13, it's sort of at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he kind of gives this call for a response. Enter through the narrow gate. And what you see in these verses is a narrow gate and a wide gate, a narrow way and a broad way, a path that leads to life, a path that leads to destruction. That's what Jesus is describing here. He says, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. And then he goes into this discussion of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. And you can just take from the context here that these false teachers stand at the broad gate. They stand at the broad gate and say, hey, come in. Everybody is welcome. It doesn't matter what you believe. You can come into this gate. You can come into this way. They lie to people and they deceive them. And they say, sin is not an issue in this gate. Repentance is not necessary through this gate. Come as you are. Jesus loves you just the way you are. And he will let you stay the way you are. You bring whatever sin that is that you love so much, you bring it through this gate and you can keep it when you get to the other side. God doesn't care. God is happy. God loves you just the way you are. He wants you to stay the way you are. That's the broad gate. Everybody goes to heaven through this gate. Everybody can come on their own terms. Everybody can be entertained into this gate. This is the gate that appeals to the sensuality of man. This is the gate that gives me what I want. This is the gate that makes me feel good. This is the gate that sounds so right. It's not exclusive. It doesn't shut anybody out. This is the true gate. I want to go down that gate. I've been to so many funerals where I have listened to pastors preach a known unbeliever into heaven. It's just not true. Everybody does not go to heaven when they die. It's just not true. It's just not true. That is the thinking of so many, and that's the broad way that's been taught in our culture so much. Everybody is going to a better place when they die. That's the broad way. Because God loves everybody God does love, my friends, but God loves the truth as well. And he will condemn you to hell if you reject his son. It's a, an appeal that's just based on pride and greed, and that's why many follow it. That's why many 
will go down that path. The narrow gate, you know the narrow gate. It's like a turnstile on a subway, to get on a subway or something. It's, it's one person gets through at a time. You can't bring a lot of baggage with you. It's kind of tight, right? Narrow. It's, 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 it's repentance of sin. It's leaving, willing to turn my back on my sinful lifestyle and seeing Jesus as more attractive than anything I could possibly ever want. It's denying myself and taking up a cross and going through the narrow gate. It's exclusive in that sense. Jesus says, I am the way, the only way to God. The broad gate says all religions are the same. All religions can get in this gate. Doesn't matter what you believe. You can even be a Christian atheist. They say that. I'm not making that up. It's just ridiculous. The false teachers say you shall surely not die, so live it up. It's all about you and your happiness. Joel Olstein says, excuse me, says, your best life now. And for some people, I want to tell you something, this is their best life right now because the next life is not going to be good. It's not. And so they lied to people. We know that the best life is to come. This best life is to come. It's not this life. We're just passing through. We have some victories and we have some defeats and battles and things like that through this life. And life, this life is hard. This life has its joys and it has its sadnesses. But we have hope. We have hope. The narrow way promises heaven. It leads to life. Jesus said in verse 14. And there are few who find it. Isn't that interesting? There are few who find it. If you're thinking Christianity is going to be popular, you're wrong. You're so wrong. If you think the masses are lining up to go down to the narrow gate, you're wrong. They're not. I would say the reason you're sitting here this morning and believing what I'm saying about this narrow gate is because God has done something in your heart to make that narrow gate more attractive than the broad gate. He's done something in your heart to draw you to the narrow gate and love Jesus more than you love your sin. And desire Jesus more than you desire your sin. And that's why you embrace him, because he died for sin. He was crucified for sin. The broad gate, there's no crucified Messiah in the broad gate. Oh, that's, that's child abuse to kill your son. But he had to die, or I can't get... I have no hope. We preach Christ crucified. That's not the message of the broad gate. We preach Christ crucified because we need a savior. We need our sin dealt with. We need hope. And only Christ can do that. And only God could do that through his son. So what that verse means, back to verse 2 of 2 Peter 2, what that verse means is many will follow and imitate their sensuality. 
Look down at verse 10 of 2 Peter chapter 2, talking about these false teachers. They indulge the flesh and its corrupt desires and despise authority. Verse 13, they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. Verse 14, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. Verse 18, for speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality. That's the character of these false teachers. And those who go down the broad way, those who follow them, and imita- they imitate these things about them. Because you know what? It appeals to our baseness. But it doesn't stop, unfortunately, with those who follow them. Notice what it says in the rest of verse 2. And because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. Do you see that? Now, this is sad to me. Every time there's a scandal in a church, by a false teacher especially, every time there's a scandal, what does everybody think? Oh, you are part of that. Oh, they lump us all together, right? They lump us all together. You're hypocrites just like those people are hypocrites. You see, the world sees this. They see the excesses. They see the excesses of these people. They, they see the, the money. They see the, the, the flamboyancy. They see all of those crazy things they do. And they lump us all together. It maligns the church of Christ. It maligns other Christians. It affects us all. Even though we have no part of that, and even though I would say they're not even Christian, they just lump it all together, don't they? It maligns the way, he says. It maligns the way of the truth, the way. That's what the early church called the the way to God through Christ. It was called the way. Described the true church, those who believed in the way or followed the way. Look down at verse 15 of chapter 2. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. See that in 2.15 of 2 Peter? Look at 21. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness. The way is maligned, Peter is saying. The true way is maligned. The Christian message is undermined. The church is maligned. The world sees all of this and think that's what Christianity is all about. Much of, much of the New Testament, much of the New Testament books have this concern about the way we live. The way we live and the testimony that we are to the world. First, verse 15 of chapter 4, you don't need to turn there, but listen to this. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, thief, or evildoer, or troublesome meddler. Don't let your life be characterized by those things. If you're going to suffer, suffer for the cause of Christ. Suffer for doing what is right, Peter says in 1 Peter. But don't suffer for those kinds of things. If you're getting suffering, if you're suffering because you've done those things, you deserve it. You deserve it. And then he goes on, another book that talks about this. This is speaking to older women in the church and their testimony to the world. Notice this. So that they may encourage the young women 
to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that, get this, the word of God will not be dishonored. That's a role for older women. You're looking for a ministry, older women? Encourage younger women. We got a lot of younger women in this church could use your encouragement. You know what makes the world look at us and take notice? It's when women are loving their husbands, their children are sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. He gives instruction in the same passage for men and and older men and younger men and, and younger women. He gives all that, but I'm just focusing on that one for the moment. But the point, you get the point. Titus, in the book of Titus, Peter, excuse me, Paul is saying, your testimony to the world matters. Romans 2, 23 and 24, speaking to the Jews, you have the law. You have the law of God. It's all been given to you, entrusted to you, but you don't even do it. You malign the name of God to the world by saying you have God's word and you don't even live it. So false teachers cause slander to be spread and they talk about a law and they don't even keep it. Folks, that's hypocrisy. The world is right when they, when they say to us, as one German philosopher say, show me your redeemed life and then maybe I will believe in your redeemer. That is a fair demand for them to make on us. Why should they believe in a redeemer that doesn't redeem? Why should they believe in a redeemer when there's no example of the redeeming work in people's lives? Not that we are perfect, not that we don't fail, we certainly do. But it's gotta make a difference. False teachers are those who go around saying things, they're hypocrites, they don't do. They don't pay attention to their lives and they don't pay attention to their doctrine. Look at verse three, verse three. This is the motivation of these false teachers. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. This is false teachers and these prosperity preachers, especially in their greed or coveting, says they will exploit you. The word covet is this insatiable craving They have insatiable cravings, uh, wanting more of something, craving something that they have no right to, wanting more of something that God says you don't have a right to. It's an insatiable craving from within. It's wanting. Wanting itself, it's wanting too much. It's not wanting itself is not a sin, but it's the wanting that's just craving and controlling me type of craving they say they they say I want I want your money Uh, Peter's warning the people they're going to tell you that they're greedy I want you to satisfy me Ann and I watched a, a DVD on Martin Luther the reformer, Martin Luther, the other night. And he, he's the one that exposed so much in the Catholic Church, uh, especially in the 300s to 500s when you had the popes and the corruption of the popes and the priests and all of them. And they would 
charge money to people to buy years off of purgatory by selling indulgences and, and all this wealth of the popes and all this wealth of the priests and, and, and the Catholic Church while everybody else was just suffering in poverty and living off the poor and manipulating the poor and putting the fear in the, in the minds of the poor because if they didn't give their money, they were going to spend eternity in hell. You remember the, you remember the, the widow's mite, that, that story? When the woman is putting her money in and Jesus is sitting there and he says she's given more than them all because she gave everything she had. That was not, that was not a passage on tithing. That was a passage on the manipulation of a false religious system that said if you don't pay up, you don't go to heaven. And that's the same thing that Martin Luther was writing about the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church. And he said, hey, listen, and Doug prayed this morning, hey, listen, your doctrine was off, therefore your living is off. Dirty doctrine leads to dirty living. Right doctrine leads to right living, Doug said in his prayer. That's exactly right. They were teaching false doctrine, and therefore the result was lives that were separated from God. You know what a vestment is? I heard this from somebody else, but this is good. A vestment, a vestment, why it was created. A vestment were the official robes worn by priests, Catholic priests. It was a clergy uniform. Well, they were created back when the priest would go into the monastery. He'd have to leave all his belongings outside. He had to give everything up probably to be confiscated by the church. But the point is, he would give everything up. He would go in and be given one set of clothes called this vestment. Was anything fancy about it in the early days? It was just something very simple, but it was identifiable. If somebody saw you wearing that, they knew that you were a priest. They knew that you lived in that monastery. And everybody who was in there, had to wear that. And the reason they had to wear that in these early days, especially when it was created, was so that when they went into town, it would keep them out of the brothels and the taverns. Because people would then be able to identify them and say, hey, you don't belong here. It was given to them as some kind of a restraint to keep them from going into those places. Of course, today, you don't have to do that, but people just take off their coat and tie and go wherever they want, you know. But back then, this was was something that was done, done to control their behavior. Understand what I'm saying here. Something external to control their behavior, to control their sensuality. Something done to squish down the sensuality that the false doctrine could not control. Are you following me on this? False doctrine is not transformation. False doctrine cannot change my heart and crush my cravings. Only the transforming power of the gospel can do that. A system that tells you all externals, this ritual, this many Hail Marys, this many confession booths, this many good works, this many indulgences, this many whatever, cannot control the flesh. It cannot crush the coveting heart that all of us have. It cannot deal with that at all. It doesn't surprise me when I read of Roman Catholic priests 
and all of the sexual immorality that went on for centuries doesn't surprise me one bit. False doctrine cannot control the flesh. It doesn't surprise me in the prosperity preachers and all of their experiences and all of their miracles and all of their emotional experiences and all the people that travel from this place to that place to have some kind of experience. It doesn't surprise me all the scandals that they have too because those experiences cannot control my cravings. They can't do anything to me inside. They're just external It's only the gospel that can change me from within. I need something greater. I need something greater to conquer me. I need something greater to conquer me because I'm a selfish, coveting man. And those cravings don't die easy. And false teachers appeal to that. And they think they're teaching. They don't, they, actually, you know what? They ignore the subject. They just ignore it. They keep everything on the surface. They keep everything on the surface. It's kind of like the Pharisees. Just don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't do this. Don't do that. And you're fine. Jesus comes along and redefines sin and says, nope. Sin is much more than these don'ts out here. It's what's inside your heart. He exposed that sin is what is inside of all of us. And so all these doctrines that are being propagated cannot restrain the flesh. He says in that verse, he also says this, these greedy people will exploit you. Same word, exploit, same word used in James 4, talking about a business deal. It's the idea of um, a business exploit. It's the idea uh, in, in this verse in 2 Peter, they will merchandise you. They will merchandise you. It's the idea that they will make business of you. That's all you are to them. You're a number. How many people came to the rally how many people gave money? How much money was collected? How, much, how many credit cards were, whatever, slid through the thing, whatever. But the point is, how many? It's all about that. You're just a number. You're just a number to them. They will exploit you in their greed. They will fleece the flock. A while back, I read Costi Hen's book, um, entitled God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel, How Truth Overwhelms a Life Built on Lies. Costi Hinn was the nephew of Benny Hinn. Costi Hinn used to work in the Benny Hinn Crusades. Benny, he used to work behind the scenes. He knew the family, close to the family. He loves his family, like anybody would. But he began to see the inconsistencies. He began to see the disappointed people who were promised miracles and they never got a miracle. He was, began to see that his, his family was living in, in tremendous wealth and those who came to their rallies were poor. He saw this especially when you went to places like India and other places around the world and the masses of people that would come and their ministry would profit off of these poor people making promises that never 
came true to those people. He talked about negative confession and positive confession. He says, you couldn't even admit you were sick in my family. You go hide in the laundry room or something if you were sick. Because that would be considered negative confession. And you don't want to be negative. That just lets the devil in or something. But people are in bondage to that kind of thinking. I've heard that positive confession. That's, that's just somehow I can, goes along with the f- word of faith movement. I can speak something into existence. I can just by faith. Faith becomes the focus rather than Christ. The word false words, you see that word there? False words in that verse? Not just wrong words, but false words, fabricated words, forged words. Greedy hearts, immorality in their hearts. Look down at verse 14. Enticing, unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed. See that in 2 Peter 2, 14. Enticing, unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed. Driven by materialism, driven by sexual immorality, with falsely created words. From the internet, says this, Kenneth Copeland is worth $760 million. Benny Hinn is worth $42 million. Joel Osteen, $40 million. Creflo Dollar, aptly named, the guy that won an airplane, you remember him? $27 million. T.D. Jakes, $18 million. Joyce Meyer, $8 million. And I could give you more names. Is it a sin to be wealthy? No. It's not a sin to be wealthy, but greed is what characterizes false teachers, and these people have profited greatly from false teaching. True teachers have a right to financial support. Biblically, they're to be supported financially. Listen, I was thinking about this way. You pay me to do what I do. Excuse me, you don't pay me to do what I do. You pay me to be free from other concerns to do what I do. You pay me to be free from other concerns to do what I do because I really love what I do and I love the people that I minister to and the church that I get to minister in. First Corinthians, it's very awkward for a pastor to talk about money, by the way, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. First Corinthians 9.14, so also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. What am I trying to say? I'm just trying to say, I'm not trying to say these guys are wrong for having money or for being wealthy. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with a pastor receiving money. But millions of dollars going to suspicious false doctrines makes you very suspicious. There's other men who've become very wealthy, who are godly men who have become very wealthy in ministry, but we know they are not false teachers. The question comes up sometimes, are these men just ignorant? Are these men just ignorant? Is that the problem here? Are we, and we're supposed to be patient with ignorance, and that's, that's true, that's true. We've all been ignorant at times. Paul says he was ignorant at times. But these individuals, like I said earlier, have been warned. They've been warned and told that their doctrines are heretical. They've been named publicly as being heretical. And their response is to attack their accusers. Their response is to 
say that, don't name me. Benny Hinn said he wanted to get out his Holy Ghost machine gun and shoot everybody that was a heresy hunter. I mean, think about that. They just keep hardening their hearts. They just keep hardening their hearts, discrediting their accusers rather than deal with the issue, rather than deal with the lifestyle and the theology. There are a lot of verses that say a church can pay a pastor. Money is not wrong. Um, 1 Timothy 5.18, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. And the workman is, the laborer is worthy of his wages. You don't muzzle an ox while he's working to keep him from eating. That's the idea of that verse. Matthew 10 says the worker is worthy of his support. Galatians 6, the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. 1 Peter 5, 2 warns elders that you are not to do what you do for sordid gain. Those are the biblical warnings to pastors to Bible teachers, to preachers. Those are the instructions to the church regarding paying them. Let me me say this. This is going to get personal here just for a moment. Let me just get this. Let me just say this. If anything were to happen, if anything were to happen to this church where it could not pay me to be its pastor, I would still want to be its pastor. I would still want to be here. I would want to find some way to still be here, to get up here and do this. I don't know what I'd do, because this is all I know how to do. But the point is, I would, I would want to do this. I would want to. I'm not motivated by money. I just say this so... You know, you, you don't want to be like these guys at all. And I think I speak for all of our pastors in this way. We don't want to ever be tainted in this way by the, these, the, way, these guys, the way these guys are. Early in our years of, in ministry, early on when we came, first came, this is a much smaller church then. It, it, it was a struggle. It was a struggle for Ann and I, uh, you know, to, to, to make it financially. But we were here and, because we wanted to be here. And we took other jobs. We did part-time this or part-time that, just taking on extra work to supplement our income. You know why? Because we wanted to be here. We wanted to be here. It's not a motivation for money. It's because we desire this church. We love this church. We love the people in this church. I never wanted, I always wanted Paul's words to be my words. Paul to the Thessalonians, for we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. I just think that should be the motivation of every true teacher. I do not want to be stained with any greed. 1 Timothy 6, 5 through 6 says, constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of great gain. There are some people that think godliness is a way to get rich. That's what Paul, that's what Paul is saying to Timothy. Some people think that godliness is a means to great gain. I've been in foreign countries, and I've seen pastors, and this has got real temptation overseas, a real temptation for pastors in poorer countries. Because you become a pastor in a foreign country. 
You, are, you, re, you all of a sudden have some credibility in the eyes of people. And they begin to look at you, and also, not only in a, in a certain way, because you're, one, you may be educated, you've got some certificate, and you maybe had to do some, jump through some hoops to get that certificate or whatever, and they kind of look at you a little differently. But what does, and you know, every pastor has to guard his heart over there, because at that point, you become, some people will use it as a, a means now, I'm justified in getting money from people. I'm justified in, in asking people for support. And sometimes I would see over there houses of the pastors look really nice and the poverty all around them. There's something wrong with that picture. And those pastors will call American churches as well and just ask for money. Support my ministry over here in this country. And undiscerning churches will probably send money to them, but you've got to be discerning and you've got to search this guy out and find out really what is his motivations. And that's not just Haiti, that's other places as well. Here's the motive that you want to know that they have. The real motive, their real motive is not that you grow spiritually to the glory of God, but that they can build their own kingdom. That's, that's the problem. That's their motive. They want to build their own kingdom, and they want to merchandise you to do that. They want to use you to build their kingdom. Turn to... 2 Peter chapter 4 for a moment. I'll close with this. This passage right here kind of sums up everything I have said in these opening verses. 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul is giving a charge to Timothy. Timothy, uh, Paul is going to die soon. These are kind of his last words. He says this to him in verse One, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, notice, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Listen, Timothy, no matter the season, whether it's popular, whether it's unpopular, whether you have small crowds or whether you have large crowds, preach the word. Preach the word. Don't say things to try and make them feel good or coddle them, but reprove them and exhort them and rebuke them. Let the word be a hammer that breaks up prideful hearts. Preach the word. Preach the word. Rebellious hearts get broken up by the word. And the reason I want you to do this, because I don't want the church to grasp onto false teaching and myths. Notice in verse 3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. We just saw that in 2 Peter. They will not endure. That means they will not hold up under sound doctrine. They will not uphold, uphold under healthy doctrine. Instead, they're going to want philosophies and opinions, bring in the comedians, bring in the entertainment, bring in the psychologist. That's what they're going to want. They're not going to have an appetite for preach the word. They want to have their ears tickled. They want you to say what they want to hear. They want you to say things that are pleasing to their ears. I just went through all of that earlier in the sermon. They don't want rebuke. They don't want reproof. They don't want preaching. Isaiah 30 all over the place. They just want soft words, soft words, pleasant things, things that line up with their own desires. Take a poll, find out what we want to hear and say that. 
They find teachers who will feed their ego. That's what it's going to happen, Timothy. That's what it's going to be like. People pleasers instead of pleasing God. Be a people pleaser. Don't please God. They want to worship self rather than God. Speak to their felt needs only. Don't go any deeper than that. Verse 4, and they will turn away and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. That's exactly what we see happening and you see the, trans- the process here. If he stops preaching the word in season and out of season, if he stops proclaiming the truth, reproving, rebuking, exhorting with the word, if he stops doing that, they're going to buy into all these myths. They twist or dislocate people from the truth. That's what it means to turn aside to myths. They become wide open to Satan's myths. And so see, here's the point. The point of that is if you stop preaching the word, if Grace Church stops preaching the word, Satan will infiltrate the church. Our greatest alarm system, our greatest protection from false teaching is the preaching of the God's word. Whether you want to hear it or not, (laughs) and whether I want to hear it or not, That is what protects the church, the truth, the truth. It's difficult to deceive people. It's difficult to deceive a church that is saturated with the scripture. And so Paul makes it clear. They're going to try to draw disciples away by perverse teaching. You preach the word, Timothy. Father, thank you for our time today. Thank you, God, for your truth. Thank you that you've given us an appetite for it. I pray, God, that appetite will never wane. I pray we'll never tire of hearing these things, that we will always be ready and quick to listen, that we will be desirous of your words, that we might not fall to the hands of those who would seek to deceive us. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.